Our sermon scripture reading is found in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. The gospel according to Luke, this written document that we are reading from, it's a carefully researched first century document that follows the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's based on a couple different sources of information um, from that world, eyewitness accounts, other written documents compiled sometime around 80, or 63 AD. The word gospel and gospel according to Luke, it means good news. Luke's good news to his readers as he writes about Jesus is that to undo sin and all of the deadly consequences of sin in our world, God himself entered into our world by sending his son Jesus. And through faith in Jesus's life, his death and his resurrection, sin and death are overcome. And Luke writes, uh, not just for factual accuracy and, and for us to be interested in this story, but rather so that our hearts would be changed. He writes that both his readers, whether they are ancient or they're modern, uh, he writes in chapter one, may have certainty concerning the things that they've been taught. Luke's aim in writing this gospel is so that your faith will be built up, so that it'll be strengthened. It's Easter Sunday. Uh, We're not supposed to be in Luke chapter 24 because we are back in Luke chapter five in our Luke series, but we're blasting ahead. It seems important to do it uh, this Sunday. So we are in chapter 24. We're going to hear the good news of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Allie. Luke 24, 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father, thank you for this word, uh, this this witnessing of this uh, unlikely impossible event, Christ's resurrection three days after he had been crucified and killed. Father, pray through the reading of your word, through the preaching of your word, that you would build our faith, that you would help us to see the risen Christ and so be changed. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we can all agree the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is an impossible event. It can't happen. A man who was crucified and killed in public view, then buried, left alone behind a guarded and sealed tomb, left alone in darkness for three days, cannot come back to bodily life. It doesn't happen. Many modern people, when they reflect on this story that we just read from Luke 24, uh, other accounts of of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, they believe that the reason that this story caught on, caught hold of the ancient world was because people way back then were were fairly ignorant of biology and and life sciences. So a story like this is kind of uh, more readily accessible to them. But that's nonsense. Somebody says that, you can say that, that that's nonsense. Everyone knew that the dead stay dead. Everyone agreed on that. 
There certainly have been marvelous advances in biology and life sciences, no question about that. But in the first century, everyone knew what we know as well. Death is final. Bodily resurrection from the dead does not happen. But beyond the biology of it, uh, both ancient Jews and ancient Gentiles or, or ancient Romans, they would have good reasons for believing the story about the resurrection of Jesus that was spreading in their area was false. They would have other reasons than we have, but uh, they had their reasons. If you were a Roman living in the first century, you would also say the resurrection of Jesus cannot happen. For, for Romans of that time, there was life after death, but that life was a debodied life. It was the life where the human soul went on and on in a, in a disembodied, ethereal existence. And so once somebody died, they believed that the real them, their soul, would, would be liberated finally from the prison that is the body, uh, the, the prison that is this physical world, and they would go on forever in that kind of soulish existence. If you can remember Jedi's passing on to this like green and ghostly state in those movies or any number of sort of semi uh, see-through uh, characters from Disney movies. That, that was their hope after death. And so no good ancient Roman believed that the resurrection of the body was possible, uh, not only because dead people stay dead, but also because it would be like horrid for you to have to return to your body after you died. Uh, after your soul had been released through death, it would be like being forced back into prison. And similar to the Romans, no good ancient Jew would buy the story of Jesus's resurrection. It wouldn't be plausible to them. Jews did believe that at the end of time, all of God's faithful people would receive new life, but this would only happen at the very end of human existence, at the end of the world. This would be the final moment of human history when God himself would make his kingdom on the, on the earth and time as we, knew, uh, as we know it would end. So for one person, one man in one part of the world, in one tomb, in the middle of time, to be resurrected, it was not only impossible biologically, it was totally foolish theologically. And so again, everyone in the first century, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, Roman alike, everyone agreed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a totally impossible event. And so how is it when we look at the first century, when we look at these skeptical Jews, Gentiles, and Romans, how is it that thousands and thousands and thousands of them became followers of Jesus and believers of the resurrection? How is it that from 500 followers of Jesus during Jesus's lifetime, uh, these numbers quickly grew to 3,000? 3,000 people who professed the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, within uh, 200 years of Jesus's death, Christians in the Roman world were somewhere around 40,000. By 250 AD, well over a million Christians in the Roman Empire. And that was despite persecution that they were facing. To deny the resurrection, there were threats, social ostracism, arrest, even death for those who believed in the resurrection or taught others about it. And yet the faith spread like wildfire outside of Israel into India and England, into Rome, into Spain. People from all different walks of life, very skeptical that the resurrection of the body was at all possible. They came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, despite its apparent impossibility. And the reason they did so was because among other factors, there was overwhelming evidence for the resurrection. And because of this, to this day, today on Easter Sunday, there's some 2.5 billion Christians worldwide who celebrate and remember with us the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is our, this is our outline for this afternoon. The tomb is empty and Christ is risen just as he promised, so you can believe in the resurrection. The tomb is empty 
and Christ is risen just as he promised, so you can believe in the resurrection. So the first part, the tomb is empty. If you look at your text on the back middle portion of your bulletin in Luke 24, we're, we're being brought into the first day of the week at early dawn. This is Sunday morning. We have an afternoon service, so it's not as, you can't really feel it like we would if we were Sunday morning church. Um, Jesus' crucifixion, his public death, it happened late on a Friday. And that was the day before the Jewish Sabbath, which was the last day of the week in the Jewish calendar, uh, the Saturday. Uh, the Saturday Sabbath, there was a day dedicated for worship and for rest. And so observant Jews would do no work whatsoever on those days. And so Jesus, who is hastily buried uh, in a tomb after he was hastily executed on the cross on Friday, he, he didn't yet receive the traditional showings of affection that the dead typically would receive. Uh, he was buried but because it was the Sabbath, just about on that Saturday, once, once the, the sun had set, no one could do the formal, normal work of caring for his body. In the West, it's very common for us to bring flowers to the graveside or, or to, you know, to place around the casket of a loved one. In the ancient world, you can see it in the text, uh, it wasn't flowers that they'd bring, but they'd bring spices, sometimes anointing oils. And that was the way that they would show affection for their dead. And so in verse one, we encounter a group of women in verse 10, it uh, tells us the names of some of them, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and some other women. These are some of the earliest followers of Jesus, his, his earliest disciples. They were loyal to Jesus. They loved him. They were with him in his life. They were with him in his death. When many of his male disciples had fled away, when Jesus was arrested, these women stayed with him. And they're doing what anyone would do for their dead. They, they brought spices to the tomb, uh, spices that they had prepared. But of course, you get to verse two, and they arrive on a scene that they did not expect. They find the stone, which this giant, heavy stone that covered the tomb, it had been rolled away. And walking inside of the tomb, the body of Jesus was nowhere to be seen. Verse four, they were perplexed about this. Again, no one ever specs, expects resurrection. Resurrection is impossible. So they are perplexed. They're inside the tomb. They're working out possible solutions to what they're witnessing. And this empty tomb, the empty tomb is this first piece of evidence that begins to chip away at the impossibility of the resurrection event. Jesus was buried in a tomb belonging to a well-known, prominent man in Israel, Joseph of Arimathea. He was wealthy. He was a member of the Jewish ruling class. Everybody knew who Joseph was. And when Jesus was killed on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, he requested Jesus' body from the Roman government. Uh, he approached Pilate and he asked for Jesus' body. And so the Roman government knew where Jesus was to be buried, where his body would be. Uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, another account of Jesus' life, tells that uh, after Jesus was buried, uh, the Jewish leaders sealed his tomb. They set a guard over it to watch over it. They knew that, that Jesus was buried. They knew where he was buried, and they, they wanted to keep a close eye on things. And so everyone knew, everyone in that region, they knew where Jesus was to be buried. The political and religious powers that had put Jesus to death, they also oversaw his burial. And so in the days or years after reports of Jesus's resurrection had spread, it would have been very easy for the Jewish or the Roman authorities to just open the tomb and prove that, look, the body of Jesus is still here. He's still in the grave. But they couldn't because the tomb was empty. And that's actually very significant because there are many tombs today still occupied by religious leaders or, or significant figures in other religions. Uh, Buddha, the founder of Buddhism, 
His cremated ashes are memorialized in Kushinagar in India, and, and that site is visited. It's revered by Buddhists. Uh, Muhammad, the founder of Islam, he died and he was buried in Medina in Saudi Arabia, and, and that tomb as well, you can visit. But Jesus Christ's tomb is empty. He is not there. Though resurrection is impossible, though there are lots of biological, philosophical, even theological reasons to deny it, the tomb was and is undeniably empty. It was never venerated. It was never adored by his followers because Jesus Christ never remained there. So first, the tomb is empty. Second, Christ is risen. In verse 4, the women, they're perplexed by the empty tomb, but they are suddenly terrified by the appearance of angels. Angels are messengers from God. Here they, they look like men, but, but different. And the angels, of course, were there to announce Jesus' birth uh, back at his nativity, the very, very beautiful scene. Um, and now they're here again to announce his resurrection. In verse 5, the women do what I'm assuming most of us would do. They shield their eyes. They, they bow their faces to the ground. And the angels say to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. The tomb is, is, is not empty because Jesus's body is elsewhere, as in it's been removed or lost. Rather, the tomb is empty because Jesus is risen. He is no longer dead, but he is living. Now, it's not until after this section in Luke 24 that Jesus appears to his disciples. Soon he'll appear to even larger groups, as many as 500 people at a time. And it's not just that he will appear to these people kind of at a distance and like, I think that was Jesus back there, but people will approach him and they'll physically touch him. They will put their hands where he was wounded. They will share meals with him and long conversations and he will teach them. These people who knew him throughout his life, they will now know him in his bodily resurrection. And it's important to note that there are no credible alternative explanations put forward to explain Jesus's resurrection appearances. There's some really bad ones, interesting ones that make a good Netflix special, that Jesus had a twin hidden that nobody really knew about who kind of popped up after the resurrection appearances, um, that perhaps all 500 witnesses of the resurrection were having a hallucination together repeatedly over 40 days. Another thing is that this was just a massive conspiracy conducted by the apostles, those 12 disenfranchised men who had followed Jesus. And so they, they stole his body away, they hid it, and they all pledged to lie about it together. The trouble with this last one, of course, is that the disciples were not the only witnesses to the resurrection. Again, Jesus appeared to as many 500 people at once. And so uh, for this hoax to work, you would need 500 co-conspirator, co-conspirators to all be in agreement. And sadly... Uh, nearly every single one of Jesus's disciples was tortured or put to death for this steadfast commitment to the reality of Jesus's resurrection. So too were many, many other witnesses to Jesus's uh, resurrection, yet none of them cracked. None of them admitted, okay, this is where we put the body. This is what's going on. They were so sure of it that they were willing to lay their lives down for it. And this kind of suffering and dying for something you know to be an outright uh, deceit, a hoax, this is unlikely. And there was something trustworthy as people looked at the self-sacrifice of so many of Jesus' earliest disciples who were willing to bear death under the sword for faith in the resurrection that, that made their witness so compelling, so believable. The Jews and Romans in, in, the, in those early days, they were just as perplexed as Jesus' disciples. Uh, they also thought that resurrection was impossible, but, but like the disciples, they couldn't offer a better explanation for 
what people had seen. They couldn't produce the body because the tomb was empty. And they couldn't produce a credible explanation for why so many people were claiming to have been with and touched and, and spent time with the resurrected Jesus. And so when you read early historians from the Greco-Roman world, they just simply uh, reported this. So Josephus, who was a celebrated Jewish historian, he was writing in the first century. He wasn't a Christian himself. He wasn't an apologist for the church. He just wrote, Jesus, a wise man, drew over to him many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. There's many other historical accounts too, where again, Jesus' death and his resurrection are simply reported. These women were asked by the angels, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. So the resurrection, though at first blush appears impossible, is proved trustworthy because the tomb is empty and Christ is risen third, just as he promised. This happens just as he promised. The angels in the second part of verse six, going into verse seven, say, remember how he told you, hopefully they didn't have a condescending tone, but remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, or be crucified and on the third day rise. Remember that? Jesus on many occasions before the crucifixion had told his disciples exactly what would happen. In, in Mark 9, Jesus telling his disciples, I am going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill me. And when I am killed, after three days, I will rise. But this is how unlikely resurrection is in the minds of Jesus' first disciples. He promised them exactly what would happen. It happened, and they didn't believe it. Uh, though Jesus had called his own shot, nobody expected it to happen. If you look at the end of verse 10 and verse 11, uh, the women uh, told these things to the apostles, to the 11 apostles minus, minus Judas. Uh, but these words seemed to them just an idle tale, and they did not believe them. And that word idle tale, you could also translate it as, as stupid or useless talk. In Greek, it's leros, and it was used by physicians in that day to refer to the, the delirious babble of people who are very ill. And so the men disciples tell the women disciples, you're out of your mind. And this is actually, I think, one of the most remarkable aspects of the resurrection accounts is the way that the female disciples are contrasted with the male followers of Jesus. Women at this time had a very low social standing. In some court settings, their, their witness, their testimony, what they had seen and heard wouldn't even be admitted in that court. And so for all of the church's written accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, this pivotal moment in the entire life of the church, for this moment to be first reported by women, women who were first at the scene, women who were the first witnesses, women who were the first to believe, this would give zero credibility to the resurrection story in the broader world. It would sound to people just like an idle tale, something that they are foolishly and stupidly talking. If this were a hope created by the desperate disciples after Jesus died, there would be zero benefit to them to set it up like this, that the women were the first ones to be on the scene and to report it. Similarly, if this was just a fake story used to prop up uh, the teachings of Jesus's lying male disciples, 
Why were the male disciples depicted as so blind and so sluggish and so slow and unwilling to believe? If you look at verse 12, Peter goes into the tomb. He looks in, he sees the linen cloths that Jesus' body was wrapped in, and he went away, not believing in the resurrection, but marveling. He was clueless, he was befuddled. Despite the women's reporting uh, the empty tomb, being told that Christ was risen by angels, being asked to remember Christ's own words about what would happen, this inner circle disciple, Simon Peter, he just doesn't get it. If the resurrection was intended just as, as a deception, this is what you would do. You would suppress the women's role in the story and you'd elevate the men's roles. You would depict the men as models of faith that the early church should and could follow, but not the women. But that's not what happened that Easter morning. And so Luke accurately and faithfully passes on the news as it happened. And he writes this all with a purpose. The tomb is empty and Christ is risen just as he promised, so you can believe in the resurrection. He writes this as it is so that you can believe in the resurrection. We say this every week as we go through the Luke series. You're probably tired of me saying it, but Luke writes with a specific aim in mind. He's not a disinterested uh, historian. He wants to build our faith in Jesus Christ. He writes that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. He's writing around 63 AD, and the story of Jesus has spread and spread and spread. Uh, and I hope that you've seen that first century people receiving Luke's gospel, uh, they would believe that the resurrection was just as unlikely, uh, it was just as unlikely to them as it is to us. And yet, because of the empty tomb, because of the appearances of the risen Christ, just as he promised, thousands and thousands of people's doubts were turned to belief. They believed, however grudgingly uh, it, they came to belief. What happens when someone finally relents and believes in the resurrection of Jesus? What happens when they give in? What might happen to you if you believe? Well, here, here's one thing. Your other doubts can find rest in the risen Jesus. Your doubts can find rest in the risen Jesus. If you get over the hurdle of believing that an impossible event like the resurrection did in fact occur Sunday morning, that won't actually be the last hard thing you're asked to believe. Notice we just passed over the appearance of two angels talking to the women at the tomb without comment. I didn't, try, I didn't try to make a case. I didn't give you a detailed explanation of the theology of angelology. I didn't try to give you definitive proofs that angels are, are real spiritual beings. And you actually might doubt the existence and reality of angels as much or more than the possibility of resurrection. But if the tomb is empty and Christ is risen, just as he promised, you can put your doubt about angels to rest. You can put many other doubts that you might have about the scriptures and about the reports of Jesus to rest as well. If Jesus is who he says he is, the son of God, the savior, the Christ, the king, and he has proven who he is through his resurrection over death, everything else that he says can be trusted. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ isn't risen, who cares? <laughs> why, why bother trying to answer the other questions? What Jesus says about angels can be trusted, friends. What Jesus says about sin and forgiveness can be trusted. What Jesus says about money and sex and power can be trusted. What Jesus says about God and heaven and hell can be trusted. St. Augustine was a pastor in the fourth century in Africa, and he had a saying in Latin, create ut intelligis, which meant believe that you may understand. 
believe that you may understand. Uh, another, uh, another figure, Anselm of Canterbury, he was a monk in the 11th century. He had a, a very similar motto, and it was faith seeking understanding. Both Augustine and Anselm had their doubts. They had their questions about God, about everything that Jesus taught, about everything that we've been taught in the church. There were aspects of the Christian faith that they were fuzzy on, that they wanted greater understanding of. But instead of of beginning to try to gain total understanding of everything and only later graduating to faith and commitment and belief, they actually began with faith in the risen Jesus. And from that faith sought understanding. They had a faith that sought understanding. And this is the invitation to you who doubt, who wonder, who with Peter, you're in the tomb, you see that it's empty, and you're marveling. What's going on here? Let your doubts find rest in the risen Jesus. Let Jesus be the solid ground from which you build your faith, that you go out further seeking understanding. Don't wait to begin a life of faith until you got everything figured out, until you have the answers to all of your questions. That day will never come. Entrust yourself to this Jesus who is risen. Believe in him. And from that place, seek greater understanding alongside him. Jesus' death and resurrection is our hope, uh, is the hope that our sins have been put away by God, that we have new life in God. And if you can't believe that, if you doubt the possibility that God himself could forgive the things that you have done or the things that have been done to you, if you doubt this promise that is held out to you every Sunday uh, that you can be made clean, you could be made whole and forgiven, pure as the driven snow, let those doubts find their rest in the risen Jesus. He himself, he alone is our peace. And so now may you with the eyes of faith see the empty tomb and the risen Christ. May you listen to the words of Jesus carefully and remember them, knowing that everything Jesus says will come true. May you finally believe in the resurrection and may your faith seek understanding. And may all your fears, your fear of death, your fear of being disliked, your fear of being loved by God while you are a sinner, find their rest in the risen Jesus, who he himself is our peace. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we confess to you our, our disbelief that we find the resurrection story difficult to believe. And we confess alongside our brothers like Peter and these women and Augustine, and Anselm, and, and so many through the centuries who, um, who doubt and wonder and marvel. Father, I ask that you would give us this great gift of faith, that we can believe in the risen Christ, that this day, this Resurrection Sunday, is true. And all of the promises that Jesus has said of forgiveness and life by faith in him are true as well. Lord, would you give us rest? Would you give our hearts and our minds, which often wander and, and try to find truth apart from you and, and meaning and value apart from you, uh, that we would repent of these things and that we would come to you, our God and our creator, from whom all blessings flow. Father, have mercy on us. Thank you for the resurrection. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.